Welcome to an exegetical study of biblical scripture. This scripture is God's speech, God's story, written through the hands of men by his spirit, and it's all about God's glory. My name is Bryce Ferguson. Join me now as we go into the word. This is Genesis. Brothers and sisters, I greet you in the wonderful name of our Lord God. Let's pray. Dear Lord, dear wonderful, loving God, who has created all things, who has created the minds and the hearts of men, who has made us in your image and your likeness, that we might in so many ways have facets and have aspects of who you are in us. Your image, your likeness. And we are created to do all of these things on earth. Our life is to be very fruitful and very full and very loving and very intentional and very purpose-driven. There is a lot to do. Let us not think that we don't have anything to do or that we are bored with the lives that we have because God, you have made us for so much more. And your word testifies to this truth. Open your word to us today, God. Let us cling to the words of God. Let us cling to your commandments. Let us cling to your instruction. Let us cling to your laws, because they are good and because you have commanded them. Pray this all in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son. Amen. Well, folks, we are in Genesis chapter 3, so if you have your Bibles, please open them to Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 through five. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. We see scripture, we see Genesis takes an incredible turn here at the start of chapter 3. Just after the creation of Eve, just after the creation of woman, when she was created by God, had taken a rib out of Adam, very personal 
surgery, that he would share in so many ways his similarities, his aspects, his facets, the way that he is created with woman according to his kind. But this creation of woman was unlike any other creation of creatures on the earth in so many ways, made in the image and the likeness of God, which we've said multiple times. But the God took a rib out of Adam to form Eve and then brought her to him. And then immediately, after Adam calls her woman, for she was taken out of man, immediately we have chapter 3. And some may wonder if Eve was even knowledgeable about the commandment that God had made to Adam. As God had made the commandment, to Adam prior to the creation of Eve, or at least that is the order that we have in Scripture in chapter 2. What we see explicitly here, that while she did not quote God exactly, yes, she was aware of the commandment, obviously, in this conversation. So let's back up to verse 1. The serpent was more crafty. It's not specifically particular that crafty is in our American interpretation of the word crafty, uh, conniving, if you will. That the original Hebrew translation has the same meaning, not necessarily so, according to scholars, but crafty. Already this describes something of a unique aspect of other creatures. We don't hear anything of other creatures describing personality traits or adjectives about them, but we do with the serpent in verse 1. The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. So crafty is heavily implying and possibly more directly showing us not only something unique, but I think strongly this implies a warning. That he is crafty. Why, why would a serpent need to be crafty? Why would a creature need to be crafty? Well, there's a very particular reason. But well, we read the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of field that the Lord God had made. And indeed, I would say this is not just any serpent. The serpent spoke to the woman, which is amazing because the serpent was a created creature of the slithering kind, but I'll put it in of the creeping kind category. And the first thing he said to the woman was an accusation, a deception in the form of a question. You always pull a little bit of weight off of the matter at hand or the statement when you ask it in a question, don't you? Just like that. It's not a heavy accusation. It's not something pushed down her throat. It's a question. 
and something possibly not as familiar to most of us in Western civilization today, but this was more prominent in debates of old. But otherwise, we don't particularly, quote-unquote, debate or do it in the form of questions. But this can be when you want to communicate something, but you want to pull a little bit of weight off it. So you ask it like a question, right? The first thing he said to the woman was an accusation. What, is it, what does it sound like in this language, in the way that you read verse 1? What does this remind you of? Who does this remind you of? Did God actually say? This already is rebellious language and of the cause to oppose God simply in the first four words of what the serpent said to the woman. Anyone who would say, did God actually say, is accusing. It's accusatory. It's provocative language. It's not obedient. It's not trusting God. It's distrusting God. It's testing the woman as to draw a line between her and God. Did God actually say, he says, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Not only, no, that is not what God said altogether, but the serpent, one, somehow already knew what God had said specifically to Adam in the commandment for then humankind to follow. But he said it, God said it to Adam. How does the serpent know about this? And two, the serpent uses many of the words in the commandment of God, but particularly omits a few words and twists the meaning and therefore blasphemes the commandment of God and has blasphemed God. See, God's word is very serious, folks. And I'm sure most of us understand this. Most of us know this. As you read the, the Bible over and over and over again, as you go from book to book, New Testament to Old Testament, Old Testament to New Testament, you see God reaffirming the great importance of what he says and following it to the letter. Now, we all stumble in many ways, but God has an expectation for his children in the relationship that he has with his children that he would be their God and they would be his people. But this is in the covenant relationship. And this snake is blaspheming God by accusing God to the woman. To the woman, he's accusing God. He's testing her. He's conniving what God said. Somehow he knew what God said, and he's twisting it. And he's battering it around. And he's handing it to the woman after it's been mutilated. He's saying, no, 
No, God didn't say no. God God didn't say that. He meant this. God doesn't have your best interest at heart. Because there's this over here. There's this tree. This is not just a regular snake, folks. Have you ever met a snake that talks like this? First of all, that communicates in your language, but then accuses God? Who talks against God? Who twists God's word? Who twists scripture? No. No, this is something working through the snake. And this reminds me, we talked about this uh, a week or two ago, of similar language of another situation where there was a misquoting of God's word, where there was a twisting of God's word, where there was another temptation, if you will, in Matthew 4. Starting in verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Hmm, the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. I bet. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God. Hmm. Kind of sounds like, did God actually say? Verse 3, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. There's very similar phrasing here, folks, between the start of chapter 3 and the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness in this account in Matthew 4. In the first temptation of bread, Jesus replies to Satan by quoting Deuteronomy 8, specifically in verse 3 which is about bread. The whole chapter is God specifically addressing the Israelites as they were about to enter the promised land. And I want to read chapter 8 to you. If you have your Bibles, turn to it and join me. Deuteronomy 8. Now, this is in Moses' uh, Moses writing. He wrote Deuteronomy, and this is God's command to the Israel people through the mouth of his chosen servant, Moses. So Moses says, the whole commandment that I command you today, you should be careful to do. And these are the words of the Lord. That you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way 
that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you know. The man does not live by bread alone. The man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. That was the verse Jesus was quoting. Continuing in verse 4. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these 40 years. Think about that, folks. Their clothing in the desert, which is a harsh environment, for 40 years did not wear out. And the same with their feet as they wandered around and moved around in the desert for 40 years. That's incredible. That is a miraculous work of God. Verse 5, Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks, of water, of fountains and springs, flowing out in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron, and out of whose hills you can dig copper, and you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Beware lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. And if you forget the Lord your God, and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish, because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. Deuteronomy chapter 8. God is very particular, and it testifies to who he is. See, his laws, his commandments, his rules, these are all a testament to his love. 
they are. Remember, a father disciplines a son that he loves. A father corrects, a father protects a son and a daughter who he loves. And this is what God does for his people. And there was warning language in here. And this is not the only place in Deuteronomy. It's over and over and over again in the law because God is saying, I love you. I love you so much. I want good things for you. And I am the way to real life, to good life, to good things, and to a good life. I know because I created you. And your true joy, your true happiness, your true contentment is found in me. This is what God is saying. Let's look at the second temptation. Satan quotes Psalm 91, 11, and 12. But let me read the verses before and after for a little bit more context. As the author of Psalm 91 is describing God as my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. He says in verse 2. So Psalm 91, verse 9. Again, these are the words of the psalmist. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder. The young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. It's interesting how Satan quoted verses 11 and 12 from Psalm 91, but not verse 13, where the psalmist is saying that because of the Lord... He will tread on the lion and the adder. The young lion and the serpent will be trampled underfoot. God is testifying to who he is through the psalmist. And Jesus responds by quoting Deuteronomy 6.16. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And the rest of verse 16 says, as you tested him at Massah. Scripture, folks, is explicitly clear, of course, that we are never to test the Lord. And we're never to recklessly endanger ourselves either. Reckless endangerment as a behavior shows opposition to the Lord. And it shows utter disregard for the sanctity of human life and that we're made in the image and the likeness of God. And because verse 16 references what happened at Massah, let's go back and read what happened at Massah. This is Exodus 17. This is as the Israelites are wandering in the desert and have already been delivered from the hands of the Egyptians and passed through the Red Sea. Exodus 17, verse 1, all the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages. 
Sin is a descriptor of a region. It's unrelated to our English word for sin. According to the commandment of the Lord, encamped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Asah and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? The people grumbling, folks, in the Old Testament, after having witnessed miraculous signs by God, a miraculous set of plagues, a miraculous, wondrous deliverance from slavery, a deliverance from the Egyptians, went in the desert, followed God through the desert, the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. God's representation that he was with them and he was leading them out of Egypt. He parted the Red Sea for them, and they passed through the middle on dry ground. And after all of the people of Israel are across, and the Egyptian army is pursuing them, God miraculously closes the Red Sea and drowns the entire Egyptian army that was pursuing them. After all of this, the people have a critical heart against God. And it's over and over and over again in Exodus. The third temptation of Jesus from Satan was something Satan was lying about. As the kingdoms of this world do not belong to him, he may have, obviously, some or limited influence over the leaders of different governments in the world. But all power and all authority are God's alone. The kingdoms of this world are God's. And Jesus replies to this temptation by proclaiming the first commandment and referencing Deuteronomy 6.13. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. 
So let's go back to Genesis 3. The serpent said to the woman, verse 1, Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? No, that was a lie. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Her response was not correct either. Verse 4, But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. That's a lie. Verse 5, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. This, folks, was an outrageous lie. This was never said in Scripture by God. So what do we have here? Just in these first four verses, we have three lies from Satan. The serpent the speaking serpent, this accusatory serpent, this serpent was Satan. The scripture says serpent, but you know in what he says, and you know in what he does, that Satan was manifesting himself through a snake. Everything which transpired in the conversation of these four verses of scripture was antagonistic toward God from the serpent. We see the first mention of Satan in Scripture in verse 1. We see who Satan is and what he's about in these verses. We see absolutely that he's adamantly opposed to God and who God is. He does not fear God. And God requires his people to fear him. We see Satan's animosity toward God. We see his animosity towards God's, toward God's creation. We see his animosity toward humans because they are made in the image and the likeness of God and are in relationship with God, those who are in relationship with God. And he holds particular animosity for them because they're of the kingdom of God. They have the Holy Spirit of God. We haven't talked about the Holy Spirit yet, but Adam and Eve were in personal relationship with God, and they're opposed to the things of Satan. God and Satan are diametrically opposed. They're opposites, and they're a war. But what we see in just these few verses of Eve's first encounter with Satan her only encounter, if you will, is that she does not stand firm on the promises of God, on the commandments of God, on faithfulness toward God, because she's in a relationship with God. We see her rather entertain temptation toward believing something opposed to what God said and opposed to who God is. She could have walked away. But rather than walking away from a crazy, apparently talking serpent in verse 1, rather than engage like Jesus did later in Matthew 4, and this account is also told again in Luke chapter 4, when he stood firm in opposition to the devil, quoting scripture, being careful to quote 
God's commandment exactly. Jesus also affirmed who God was, and he refuted Satan. But instead, she entertains the serpent in conversation. Entertaining or continues to engage or because of curiosity, which often gets people into trouble, gets people into sin or temptation. She remains there. And like happens most of the time when you linger, she's already compromised. And what this shows is her love for God was not that great. And I'm not saying she didn't love God or know God. What's obvious, though, is her love for God was not that great. We see with Jesus' temptation, there's this abiding love for God. Yes, Jesus was God. But there's this abiding love for God the Father. This Trinitarian God of the Bible, he was committed, sold out in personal relationship with God the Father. God said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. This warning is something that should strike at the heart of each of us. How do I feel about God? Men, do you love God? Do you tell God you love him? Do you think it's not masculine to say, God, I love you and I trust you? Because honestly, I cannot think of anything more masculine to say than that. Women, do you tell God you love him? Do you find it hard to express aloud to God? God, I love you and I trust you. Because I personally cannot think of anything more beautiful to say to God than that. When you're tempted, when you feel drawn to stray from God, when you feel drawn to sin, in those moments, how do you feel about God? And how do you feel about being faithful to your God? To God of creation. To the God who made the heavens and the earth. To God who made the sun and the moon and the stars. To the God who knit you together, David says, in his mother's womb. In your mother's womb. God is still the God of creation, folks. He never changes. He created then, he's creating now. When a baby is born, this is an act of God's creation. Yes, I understand how biology works. Yes, I understand how the human bodies work. It is still a creation of God. Why? Because God is in control of all human life. I said before that God knows the number of your days, the days of your life. He knows the number of days that a baby who is lying in the hospital right now will live. 
and he knows the number of days that someone who's 115 years old and still going strong will live. And Christians mourn when one of their church, one of their family members die. But we don't mourn and we don't grieve as those who do not have any hope. But they die. They pass on because God is in control of life. God is in control of taking them home when he wants them. When he is destined for them to come to heaven. And babies are born, and sometimes babies aren't born. I'm talking about miscarriages. God's in control of that too. And when there are circumstances that are outside of the control of parents with babies, God's in control of that too. Now, when we do something sinful, God has a restoration plan, but we can choose sin and we can choose to act and we can choose to do evil and that can disrupt the sanctity of life. But God still has a restoration plan for that person. Why? Because God's love is so great. God's love is so great, folks. You need to know that God loves you. He doesn't just love you. He doesn't, yeah, meh, meh, yeah. I'm telling you, read his word. God loves you with extravagance, with passion the creator of all things, the God who still creates, loves you. If people in your life, if the people you have known in your life have not shown you real love, who have not been faithful to you, who have not proven and, and had consistent love for you, and you don't, fully understand what real love is, I'm telling you this, that's God's love for you. It's perfect. But there's evil. And there's sin. And there's temptation. And every single one of us battle this. And I'm sorry to say that it took me quite a while to learn this, but I feel that God told me we need to love and we need to hate. And if there's compromise, it falls in the fact that I don't do both. We need to love God with an intense love. Have this intense passion, this intense desire to obey him and obey his commandments because we know God is good and his commandments, therefore, are good. And he says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. Simple, right? It's straightforward. It's not simple. But where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. If our love for God 
is great, we will naturally follow him. We need to love God with an intense love. And we need to hate. And I don't think, if you're like me, I don't think you ever really were taught that growing up or taught that as an adult. But we need to hate, and here's what you hate, folks. You hate the evil one, and you hate any other gospel than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not saying you go out publicly and you, and you on the street and you say, I hate the other gospels, and, you know, and, and say it to people that you know and people that you know are of other faiths. I don't know that that's going to be the appropriate witness, but what I'm saying is in your heart and in your mind, and when you pray with God, you pray in fulfillment of God's word. You pray in affirmation of God's word. You affirm God. You affirm his law. You affirm the prophets. You affirm the gospels. You affirm the epistles. You affirm revelation. Because this is God's word to us. And you are saying, God, I believe the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me, God says. Our faithfulness toward God and relationship will be fueled by two things. Our loving and trusting of who God is and of his word and our hatred of things which stand opposed to who God is and of his word. Think about a good relationship. A good relationship has a righteous jealousy. We must be jealous for God in our relationship with God. Not jealous about God, not jealous of God. I'm saying in your personal relationship with God, you have to do things that protect it. The loving and protective part of our relationship with God. And you ought to be very emotional and very passionate about refuting and refusing those who would seek to tear that relationship apart. We've got to value our relationship with God above all else. And I say that because all else is out there. And chapter three of Genesis is only the first mention of the evil one in scripture. We all know that Satan is working for the destruction of the things of God, of the kingdom of God, which he cannot shake, of the people of the kingdom of God. Oh, and yeah, he wants all those people who do not yet believe in God to not believe in God, to not follow God, to not give God glory. This is what Satan wants. To not trust God, to not truly know his word, maybe know a very loose interpretation of his word or a misquoting of scripture of his word, but not really his word. Let me read Deuteronomy 6 to you. 
If you still have your Bibles, Deuteronomy 6, starting in verse 1 through 15. Again, remember, Deuteronomy is God speaking through Moses to the people of Israel. Now, this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it. Quick pause. He just reiterated the Ten Commandments to them. These are the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land to which you're going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. See how the best way is following God? The best life is in following God and keeping his commandments. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you, in a land flowing with milk and honey. That just means this land that they were going to inherit had food in abundance. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build and houses full of all good things that you did not fill and cisterns that you did not dig and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. And folks, there is a huge history lesson and multiple sermons to be had in this passage in Deuteronomy 6 alone. But what I'll say about this is God is a jealous God. He has called you to be in relationship with him, and he calls, his call, folks, is open to all people. If you're seeking the Lord and you do not know him yet, he has called you to trust and believe in Jesus Christ, his son, whom he sent to earth to die on a cross for your sin and was resurrected to heaven to sit at his right hand forevermore. As ruler and reigner 
of all things, the only Savior of the world, and he can be your personal Savior too. But the Lord your God is a jealous God. You shall not go after other gods. The gods are the peoples who are around you, verse 14. This, this is the crux. This is the importance of the first commandment and the second commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. The Lord your God is a jealous God. He created you. He has provision for you. He has abundance for you. He has so much, folks, so much love for you. Love that will fulfill you in the deepest desires of your person, the deepest desires of your heart. God alone will fill that need in you. God alone will satisfy that craving in you to be loved. And God says, do not fall for the lie that when your life is going great, that when you have more money or that you have more stuff or you have good health for a season or for a number of years or for a number of decades, that you did it. That it was by your own power and by your own fortitude that any of that happened. No. Any and all of it is from God's hand. Any provision that you have, folks, whether small or big, if you feel like you have $200 to your name, that $200 did not come from you void of God. That came because of God. Or you have $10,000 or you have $200,000 or you have millions of dollars. God is the one who did all of this for you and gave you life and sustains your life. This is what's so amazing to me. The God of life sustains you second by second with breath in your lungs, with a heart that pumps blood, with extremities and everybody has different abilities and different disabilities. But God is the one who sustains us. We live by his good pleasure. And when it is his pleasure to take us home, that is also his to take because he's the author of life. Let's pray. Dear loving God, dear wonderful God, you knew that we were created to worship you. You knew that we were created to follow your laws and your commandments. You knew that we would not be satisfied. You knew that we would not be content. You knew that we would not thrive except in a personal relationship with you. Because when we try to do things on our own, I don't care who it is on earth, they may be super famous, they may be super wealthy. It's like throwing arrows in the dark and none of them hit the target. But when we surrender our life to you, when we cling to you, when we love you, 
when we prioritize you, when we embrace you, when we embrace the first commandment, when we say, there is no other that I want, that I choose. God alone has the number one position in my life. He trumps all others and it's not even close. This is when we truly know love and this is when we truly know life. Because you know intimately the human mind and the human heart. And you know that we are fulfilled and we are made whole and we thrive and we have happiness and we have joy and we have hope and we have contentment in you alone. Stir in us, Holy Spirit, a fervent love for God. We pray this all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Join me next week as we continue in Genesis chapter 3.